John, it's not just dangerous; it's wrong. Exactly. It's the I, the, the, the the reactions were all correct. They all came true. The, the, these are brilliant, fortuitous minds on Twitter. But yeah, I've got to give credit; they were right. Exactly. Like all these all these poor, pathetic souls who have never had sex, just globbing onto this, thinking that this is going to be their savior moment. This is going to be their one piece of uh, a cultural touchstone that they can identify with, and it's just embarrassing. Exactly. And it's as they predicted, resulted in terrible catastrophe, violence, and just absolute degradation. Exactly. Which, they're right. And now, granted, now, I know, we haven't seen the film. Yes. But but from all supposition, I mean, you saw the results on Twitter and this weekend. Like, what else can you argue? It's terrible. Just going by the casting choices, it's like, what did they expect? All right? I mean, come on. Uh, for those just cluing in, sorry if we were st- started recording a little bit late. John and I were hot, all hot and bothered about... Um, granted, a product we haven't seen, but you know, obviously, is royal the conversation. We're talking about CBS's adaptation of James Comey's memoir, a higher, a higher purpose. I know. Is that what it's called? I, who, who cares? Who remembers? Yeah, <laughs> fiasco. It's called fiasco. Uh, yeah, it's called Fire and Fury. Whatever. It's about a gazillion Trump books. It's it's basically to line the uh, line the pockets of just the tallest piece of white bread uh, at best a piece of white bread at worst uh, an absolute despicable evil man who swayed an election <laughs> and ruined countless lives as the head of the F- first as the head of the fbi then as an idiot who bungled investigations and swayed an election and is basically a partisan hack so fuck him <laughs> um, but you know and he gets to make money off a stupid book and now he gets to make even more money off a stupid miniseries i mean can you and, blame yeah, him he's he, he's unemployed right th- well, now. well no okay this is, this i heard his last job didn't go so well yeah again this is america in 2019 can you blame him for <laughs> trying to rip the copper wire out of the earth and... i suppose <laughs> i mean but in spite of in spite of my rage mm-hmm. at this news, because again, just the the whole f- fact that this guy is lionized is abhorrent to me. <laughs> However, there is one diamond in the rough, and that is the brilliant casting of one the the real star of the show, Donald Trump, mm. and who they got to cast him. John, you know who it is. Oh, oh Faith and Bogora. You knew I sat down <laughs> and did me hail marys when I heard that the great Brendan yes. Gleeson is going to be playing. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking the star of Calvary. He's talking to, <laughs> talking to a supporting role in Edge of Tomorrow, <laughs> a.k.a. Live, Die, Repeat. Oh. One of our generation's finest actors. Oh, dee, 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 dee. I mean, D- D- Dynasty John, at this not, point. John, you're not doing it properly, all right? John, if you're going to do his voice, do it properly. I mean, we're talking Dynasty here. His son is also quite talented. <laughs> uh, Towns? Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> and look, at the, look at the last Jedi again. And, um, That's the point. He's, he's supposed ham. to be whiny. I know, he's a ham. Yeah. Yeah, he's a ham, whereas Brandon Gleeson brilliantly sleeks into every role, mm. whether he's a star or more often supporting, because, you know, God bless him, he's 50-plus <laughs> uh, years old and over. He's a character actor. He's a character actor. Yeah, I know. Okay. Right. Well, he could star in stuff. I, well, I could talk about cavalry, but yeah. You could. No, no one's talking about Mr. Mercedes. <laughs> That's true. Well, th- th- there are reasons for that. I I put it at the feet of Stephen King, who I really I that's who you blame for that. Man. I blame AT and T for thinking yes, this is going to be our star making project for our exclusive streaming service. That honestly, there's not enough streaming services. This is a brilliant move on our part. Yeah, I, uh, I <laughs> also. Yeah, the name is stupid. It doesn't seem like a good idea. It's gotten some positive notices, though. No, absolutely. But that's the thing. Like, it's on a streaming service that no one is going to invest in and no one's going to bother to watch. I, I, I know. 
and it's not even that like big a swing. I, <laughs> somehow, I'm I'm sure Netflix didn't think like they would earn subscribers when they first signed on whoever those brothers are to Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. But God bless them, it worked. And I guess that's the the algorithm or the calculus going on in AT and T's heads. Well, like, well, we have something similar. <laughs> You've got the, the the a grounded crime story instead, like Law and Order. Well, yeah, um, but but it has but it's Stephen King adjacent, like Stranger Things. Yeah, but that's the like, but. Bojack Horseman also made fun of this last season as well. It's like, what was the fake website for that one? What time is it? dot com? They launched their own exclusive yes, streaming it, it, service. Created, yeah, created just to gain SEO, but then they pivoted to the next money making venture, which was being a streaming service. Of course, and they make fun of it like that. Like, what's the? I forget what the show is, but again, it's a dark, gritty yeah. cop drama. You know, meant <laughs> to just Philbert, like John. collect the accolades. You don't remember Filbert? Filbert, that's what it's called. I thought it was yeah. like Philip. Bojack is Filbert. <laughs> yes. Next week on Filbert. <laughs> yes powerful stuff and also again complaining about the netflix uh, uh algorithm deciding no six seasons is enough for bojack which uh, i can't really argue but also <laughs> uh, no i don't like it, it uh, <laughs> well john it, it may have more to do with say the uh the collective bargaining and unionization of some of their animators oh really oh and netflix is like oh great we got to pay you not anymore <laughs> <laughs> i didn't hear one about more this season and that's it i didn't hear yeah. about this is that why tuca oh, and birdie yeah. barely made it one season uh, it could have done as well. Okay. Could have done. I I suppose I'm talking Britishish now. <laughs> but yes, it 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 may have had to do because they're a company and they've got to look at one thing, the bottom line. So did you ever? It's not quality television, and I'm not sure. To be honest, as critically acclaimed as BoJack Horseman and Tuca and Birdie are slash were, I don't. I'm not sure they moved the needle in terms of viewership. Mm. I, I, actually, I disagree. If you look I'm at, sure if they did an exit really? survey, okay. I'm sure if they did an exit survey like YouTube does, it's like, hey, why did you sign up? Was it for BoJack? And everyone would go, yes, because I have way too much <laughs> faith in humanity. <laughs> I, I don't. I'm far more cynical in this perspective. <laughs> okay. For one thing, I'm not sure what exactly, if a single point, well, I guess it would be, say, Friends, or mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it or certainly wouldn't be something original. It would be something, yeah. Uh, something syndicated mm-hmm. that people just put on in the background because who has the time to commit to Bojack Horseman or even Tukin Birdie? Like, I don't, I can't, sorry, I don't have the, the either the, the physical time or the mental capacity to commit myself to a new show. Forget it. <laughs> well, I mean, and that's the thing. I was listening to another podcast where they mentioned, like, The Office. And is The Office lauded as a classic because everyone truly loved it, or is it just the availability of it? Like, and you have to wonder that about a lot of sitcoms because do we kind of treat them as classics because of their quality or just because they were always in syndication so we're just used to them? I, that's a fair point about Seinfeld. I guess mm-hmm. we're going to have to do a deep dive and see like what what exactly is it about Seinfeld? Like, Did the popularity beget its syndication numbers and then it, it's available to find a new audience and continue for, oh, gosh, 25 plus years later? Mm. Whereas, I don't know, something's got a more limited cult appeal. Exactly. I mean, I guess we can also talk about that when it comes to movies is like, what is the preferred metric of what the way we judge movies or TV shows is like, is it rewatchability? Is it bingeability? Yeah. Is it, or is is it, it the market, you know, kind of market forces enabled it to be enabled it to be like bait or something like that for more viewers. And then they pile on for, for instance, I don't know. 
I mean, ugh, all this talk about art and commerce, Greg. Oh, <laughs> it doesn't seem appropriate for just a normal conversation like we're having. I mean, if we're yeah. going to have a conversation like this, we should probably record it or something for prosperity's sake. Exactly. John, you're going back to the real impetus of the show. You and I would talk probably for an hour plus every week <laughs> about whatever the heck it is that was in the news or what we watched that week. And he thought, hey, we make each other laugh. Why don't we just record it and hopefully, not <laughs> not expectedly, but hopefully make people laugh. Of course. And, and so again, that's, that's like where you, we are now. Exactly. Snobs. Aspiring Snobs, a podcast where we revisit old classics. And like you said, uh, you know, market forces dictate that the show should not exist because Lord knows there's not a shortage of supply when know. it comes to podcasts about two white guys talking about movies. So, yes. here we are. but here we are. And because it's Halloween, ooh, spooky, ooh. We're, we're revisiting some spooktacular spook fests of the spooky variety. I should really have come up with better adjectives <laughs> for, for these movies. <laughs> That's right, John. You've been a, a, a real, uh, that was a ghoulish <laughs> introduction to her. The movie you watched this week, which is very, I think, somewhat positive because you and I don't like horror movies. Mm-mm. Not particularly, no. Again, we're mm. we're white men. We want to stay away from that sort of stuff. We don't want to face harsh harsh truths and realities. We're um, already we, so privileged as it is. Why would we want to confront that in, in exactly. any way, shape, or form? Come on. Yep. But we did it this week with a, a particular classic, um, and we got to face some harsh truths here, uh, particularly with the artist behind it. Uh, yes. <laughs> yeah. And that is, of course, 1968's Rosemary's Baby. Did you write the management that you were drug addicts and litter bugs? Instead, I decided to lie and tell them you were wonderful, Terrence. Ah, you're great, Hutch. Wish I could talk you out of it, though. He's pulling your leg, Rohani. Geez, I'm not. Now, that looks great. That is Are you great. aware that the Bramford had rather an unpleasant reputation around the turn of the century? It's where the Trench sisters conducted their little dietary experiments. And Keith Kennedy held his parties. Adrian Mercado lived there, too. So did Pearl A. Oh, the Trench sisters. Got it. Oh. The Trench sisters were two proper Victorian ladies. They cooked and ate several young children, including a niece. Oh, lovely. Adrian Mercado practiced witchcraft. He made quite a splash in the 90s by announcing that he'd conjured up the living devil. Apparently, people believed him, so they attacked and nearly killed him in the lobby of the Bramford. You're joking. Later, the Keith Kennedy business began, and by the 20s, the house was half empty. I, I knew about Keith Kennedy. I didn't know that Marcato lived there. And those sisters. World War II filled the house up again. Terrific. <laughs> the house? The lamb. <laughs> they called it Black Bramford. But hot. Awful things happen in every apartment house. Now, this house has a high incident on unpleasant happenings. In 59, a dead infant was found wrapped in newspaper in the basement. Mmm, you really roused my appetite. Oh, crap, I forgot my recorder. I was supposed to record <laughs> Record what? The, the, my my brilliant lullaby for my devil spawn? <laughs> no, I mean, like, I'm obviously, he, the recorder is used in satanic rituals because the recorder is the most satanic of all instruments, oh, let's be course, honest. Oh, of course, yes. <laughs> Besides well, maybe some... the slide whistle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so having a discussion about this movie is like saying, let's talk about OJ's career as an actor. <laughs> 
yes. Um, so this was directed by Roman Polanski. You might be familiar with that name, but you might not be familiar with his whole uh, history, shall we say. Um, he is a extremely talented director. Um, yep. Huge hotshot in the late 60s, early 70s. Yes, but unfortunately he uh, pled guilty to raping a 13-year-old, was it? Uh, yeah, ran afoul of the law. The circumstance was, well, he first encountered tragedy. If we're just going to bring the externalities and make this more a biography of one Roman Polanski, mm-hmm. it started when he was married to Sharon Tate. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were expecting their first child. However, she was murdered by acolytes of Charles Manson. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of like this is not tragedy. to excuse his later behavior. This is just no, to no, give no, a little no, context. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, just give it a little context. Again, like having that unimaginable tragedy happen to you would you know change the trajectory of anybody's life. Mm-hmm. However, that was in uh, 1969. In 1978, uh, he got discovered having a, I believe, a 14-year-old girl tied up in his basement. Yeah, and although. The woman claimed she consented to it or something. He was charged with uh, rape and I think some sort some sort of a kidnapping charge. He fled to Europe and has not been able to be extradited or face charges in the United States. No, but he's still been able to enjoy an illustrious career filled with uh, you know awards and accolades, which some people, yeah. uh, including me, feel a little. Uh, let's say, uh, ambivalent about <laughs> the fact yeah. that he gets to basically face no consequences for his actions, even admitting to those actions. So, yeah. yeah. And, you know, granted, how many times do we have to have this debate? Oh, they're a great artist. How can that excuse, though? Yeah, like, no, that's complete absolute actions. bullshit. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can't separate the art from the artist. The whole point of art is the fact that it exists in a context. And so I, I have hesitation. I have kind of... I had a bit of hesitation revisiting this movie in particular because of this, but I was curious, and I do want to see it, and I kind of want to look at it with fresh eyes, even though that is impossible. So, with that in mind, Greg, why don't you tell us your thoughts on the movie? (laughs) Well, I'm glad we set up that preamble, because just thinking about Roman Polanski and his personal travails makes me feel icky. Yes. And how apropos is that for Rosemary's Baby, which, in spite of its technical achievement, how influential it seems over the horror genre, at the end of the day, I felt very icky watching mm-hmm. this movie. Yes. Um, it's based on a novel by a guy named Ira Levin, mm-hmm. and it seems to play off the fears, uh, like a lot of like everyday anxieties, say pregnancy, uh, our neighbors, uh, how we're going to be as caregivers, you know, lo- those kind of everyday fears, but it takes a more fantastical direction in which uh, the eponymous Rosemary, played by Mia Farrow, who's kind of on the other end of a, a victim, the victim uh, <laughs> complex, you could say, <laughs> victim of tragedy, plays uh, t- basically the unwilling surrogate to the spawn of the devil. Yes. Um Rosemary is uh, one half of a young couple who just moves to a brand new Manhattan apartment where yeah, it's implied... The Dakota building. Yes. Something, which is important. Something not exactly above board happened, but they're not ones to kind of believe in superstitions. Although it's heavily implied that uh, Rosemary was raised Catholic and she does have reservations about the fact that she's no longer practicing. The Pope is coming into town and, you know, she feels like kind of obligated to go see him or at least pay him some reverence. So there's a lot going on in this movie. It's very layered. Yeah. And I, that's what I appreciate about this movie. Uh, not only technically does it kind of capture... Uh, the feeling of paranoia that she's having, or at least kind of the horrors that her body's kind of undergoing, but it it, it captures a certain layer, layered 
feeling of kind of schizophrenia and paranoia, which the movie actually plays ambiguous with for a very long time until maybe the third act. <laughs> yeah, I, I lamented the fact that we can't see this with fresh eyes. Mm-hmm. Like you and I both know, I think we'd already seen the ending at that point. Very famous scene in which Mia Farrow does a fantastic job. We'll we'll commend her later for just an amazing performance. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you'll agree. Yes, but like the fact that we can't see it with fresh eyes. Like already, I know they're moving into the Dakota building. It's not called the Dakota, but that building is haunted as fuck. So, <laughs> like already, you're put at unease by this weird dark building in Central Park West. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've also got again. Oh, the neighbor died mysteriously, and oh, I got the job because the other actor went blind suddenly. <laughs> You know, a perfectly normal thing that humans experience every day. Like, that's just a normal thing humans have, right? What time did I go to sleep? You didn't go to sleep. You passed out. Uh, from now on, you get cocktails or wine, not cocktails and wine, huh? The dreams I had. Don't yell. I already filed them down. <laughs> I didn't want to miss baby night. You and a couple of my I nails were out? ragged and and it was kind of fun in a necrophile sort of way. I dreamed someone was raping me. I didn't know someone inhuman. Thanks a lot. What's the matter? Nothing. I didn't want to miss the night. We could have done it. This morning or tonight, last night wasn't the only split second. I want to get to the first thing that really, where I didn't want to really continue with the movie anymore, and that's the, oh, honey, you got too drunk and passed out. I still had sex with you anyway. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you kind of egged me on, right? I mean, I didn't want to miss our baby-making opportunity. (laughs) Exactly. So in the story, our two heroes, Rosemary and, what's his name, John? Uh, Guy. Guy, oh sorry, Guy Woodhouse. Mm-hmm. They, they just moved in and they're trying to have a baby. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've got two very nosy neighbors, but like in the context of trying to have a baby, and as we see the two nosy neighbors and how they pretty much invade and ruin their lives. <laughs> <laughs> she has she has something mysterious, some kind of illness, or maybe a little bit too much to drink. She passes out, and the husband just casually says, like, oh, we did the deed anyway. <laughs> anyway, I gotta go to work. <laughs> yeah, and, and just... she has scratches on her body as well. This is all yes. in the, this is all in the uh, 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 subtext of her having a very vivid dream where she's on a boat, she's surrounded by people she does not recognize, she goes down into the lower levels of the boat, and she gets raped by a demon, basically. Yeah. Um, and a, a very hallucinatory sequence, and I think very well done in maybe what gripped audiences, because mm-hmm. otherwise it seems like a very stately domestic drama. I mean, well directed. I would describe well the style as stately but... whatsoever, because not stately. Okay, yeah. a lot of handheld in this in this movie, which mm-hmm. I think adds to the sense of like paranoia and kind of uh, schizophrenia. Like I said, like the the whole the whole ambiguity of the movie's playing with is: are these fears genuine or? Does Rosemary have a point? Does does she really believe that there's some kind of evil witchcraft conspiracy that's, you know, trying to take her child, or is she just going nuts from the stress? 
Um, I, see, I I don't think I could see it with fresh enough eyes. And no, see, like, and I mean the, the other away. thing too is you you forgot to mention the point where yes, she passes out. Well, this is immediately after that. Her upstairs neighbors, who are very noisy, very involved in their lives, give them something to eat—a special chocolate mousse, which they keep. Pronouncing oh, it is as the mouse. chocolate mousse. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, they keep pronouncing it as mouse. I'm like, who are these uncultured, uncivilized Upper Manhattanites? Like, come I on. think. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about the cast of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Like immediately, you should throw off any alarm bells if your neighbor if your neighbors are this friendly, <laughs> like immediately ready to co- come over. They live uh, precisely next door, so they can actually hear each other through the walls. And there's nothing sp- suspicious there. However, what, our real introduction to them is when Rosemary's doing laundry and she meets a neighbor who's living with the Castavets. Uh, she admits to, you know, recovering from a drug addiction, and she said they took them in. But that's when they also reveal the, the charm that smells of, like, sulfur. And yeah. They say, like, oh, it's a root, but it's, it, it, it's got a, a, a distinctive smell that's supposed to be a good luck charm. Again, mm-hmm. like, red flag, like, one of one million for me. <laughs> <laughs> Which I was just screaming, like, Rose, Rosemary, get the hell out of there. She <laughs> later commits suicide while wearing the charm. Mm-hmm. And then the cast of give her that charm later. Again, red flag number, you know. I don't know how much clearer these these weirdos can be. Well, it's also like again the first time we're actually introduced to the uh, Castavets is when they discover the body of the woman who's just jumped out of a six story window, and they're kind of like, not that they're not like taken aback, but they're also kind of weirdly nonplussed about it. They're like, no, oh, well, these things happen. <laughs> so, well, yeah, and, John, she was a drug addict, so <laughs> of course, what do you expect? Yeah. And it is kind of funny that the uh, woman, I can't remember her name now, but uh, the woman that they did take in and tried to recuperate, she, she even mentions, like, I thought they were inviting me in for some weird sex thing. But, you know, turns out they really did have my best interest <laughs> at heart. It's like, well, not really. Um, they did watch yeah. for a weird sex thing. And that is kind of yeah. the one, uh, the interesting thing about this movie is it does try to, I think, intentionally play against horror tropes. A, it's happening in a very uh, urban setting as opposed to like, you know, the rural backwoods, which a lot of horror movies take place in. But also the kind of evil conspiratorial people are kind of so old and genteel. Like, well, yeah, I think that's why, like, she pronounces it mouse instead of moose. It's not like they're sophisticated. It's not like they're, not like they're diabolical evil geniuses. Mm-hmm. <laughs> At least that's not the way they appear. Yeah. Well, again, going back to like uh, Rosemary, a big theme in this movie is the fact that she's a lapsed Catholic, and yeah. uh, it's implied that she doesn't really have a lot of contact with her family anymore because she married a Jew. She's an actor. Yeah. <laughs> what do you expect? <laughs> um, yeah. Isn't she also? Isn't she from? Uh, uh, Omaha or Oklahoma? Yes. like Yeah, yeah. salt-of-the-earth Midwesterner. Exactly. And like a lot of horror movies play with this idea of like lost traditional values. So obviously she's she's moving from the American heartland to the big city, New York. Yeah. But also, it kind of implies that these Castavets, they're kind of an older, they're from an older generation, but they're still kind of evil. And it's actually her younger friends who kind of keep her more tethered to reality. Yeah. <laughs> so I think it's because we're in the late 60s now when we're making a transition to be countercultural. Mm-hmm. I, I think there there's that. Um, but also, I, th- I think there's a, the temptation of... They do bring up the fact that, in spite of the fact that they've bought and renovated a build, uh, an apartment in the Dakota building, which must be hugely expensive for the time, even mm-hmm. for the late 1960s. Or, excuse me, 1965 is when the story is set. Um, I think also, like, there's there's some 
classism or the the fact that yeah you're right there is some some kind of changing uh, changing culturally um and this is most exemplary in the fact that Mira Farrow gets her trademark haircut from uh Vidal Sassoon <laughs> that's true <laughs> now even though that is the trademark image of this movie is her in that crop top haircut I thought like it doesn't really get explained or anything. It's not really motivated at all. It's just like the next scene, she's like, oh, like, it, it seems like it happened on a whim, and they're just like, okay, we're going to roll with this. Yeah. Um, <laughs> when really, I, I think it was part of the production, and Roman Polanski was like, yeah, let's get him in here to do the hair. I mean, I think it does speak to the sense of the fact that it is about Rosemary losing her autonomy. So, like, the kind of last act she gets before she's kind of becomes fully pregnant and all decisions are kind of made for her is her mm-hmm. cutting her hair. And, again, like... That's every, true. Everyone from her husband to her, you know, her surrogate godparents, you know, uh, you know, Minnie and Roman, they don't like the hair either. And it's kind of like the last decision she gets to make before they completely, like, take these pills, take this, yeah. you know, drink. Did you drink all of it? Make sure you drink all of it. You know, it's like, clearly they're, they have other intentions or whatever. Or at least, again, I wish the movie played with the ambiguity a little bit longer. Um, well, yeah, because in the course of this, again, wretched rape scene, which is not <laughs> wretchedly done, but just the, the way it made me feel, mm-hmm. like not like not the fun kind of scared, but just this deep guttural awfulness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you actually see there's a, a brief sequence in which the camera pans over all these des- devil worshippers, and her husband Guy is standing kind of in the background and says, "She's not really getting hurt, is she?" And I knew immediately, like, "Oh, he's in cahoots, yeah, with with these devil worshippers, with this coven of witches, just to advance his acting career." So not only is he selfishly like playing off this horrible rape that he just committed mm-hmm. but also to to be so selfish and in and, and it doesn't help that it's played by John Cassavetes like god bless him I'm sure he's a good actor and other things but yeah he's just a total a, just a total drip and unlikable in this Well, yeah, that's, that's the why. point. I mean, he's even yeah. a total drip before he makes a pact with the devil. He's like, that's true. <laughs> I've been too selfish. I've been too focused on my career recently. Let's do something for you. And then he has her get raped by the devil. So, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's, he's definitely not a very good guy. <laughs> and no. I don't think that there's any kind of redeeming quality to the character. And that's kind of the point. Uh... Steven Marcato, all right. Poor old geezer with a crazy father like that. No wonder he switched his name around. You, you don't think he's the same? What do you mean, a witch? <laughs> Ro, are you kidding? Oh, Ro, honey. His, his father was a martyr to it. Do you know how he died? Honey, it's 1966. The, this was published in 1933. There were covens in Europe. That's what they're called, the, um, the, the congregation. Covens in Europe, in America, and in Australia, and they have one right here. That whole bunch, the parties with the singing and the flute and the chanting, those are espas or sabbaths or I whatever they're excited, called. I don't get excited, Read what they do, guy. They use blood in their rituals, and the blood that has the most power is baby's blood. And they don't just use the blood, they use the flesh, too. Rosemary, for God's sakes. They're not setting foot in this apartment ever again. And they're not coming within 50 feet of the baby. They're old people. They have a bunch of old friends. Dr. Shan happens to play the recorder. They're not taking any chances with the baby's safety. We're going to sublet and move out. We are not. Oh, yes, we now are. We'll talk about it later. You can also kind of chalk that up to the fact that this is why this movie is like while it's good it's not a fun watch because rosemary is the only character you're kind of rooting for yes and god bless mia farrow 
it's an ex- it's an incredible performance. Like that should I'm amazed she I don't think she was even nominated for an Oscar. Her, her damn annoying neighbor played by Ruth Gordon, who I'm sure is she does a damn good job being that just a wretched annoying neighbor <laughs> who also uses her to spawn the devil. But she won an Oscar, and Mia Farrow I think sadly didn't even get nominated. It's it's a it's an injustice I tell you, but it's an incredible performance, and and I thought reminiscent of one of our favorite performances from this decade. Uh, Michael Shannon in Take Shelter. Mm. You get to be kind of the normal, you know, family person, family man or woman. Uh, however, something supernatural comes in, and you get to play all these different modes. Like, okay, things are calming down. I get to be jovial again. Like, oh no, but things are now ramping up, and I got to be crazy a little bit. Or yeah, exactly. At least pe- appear crazy to others. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, so the scene that really stuck out to me, and I think is probably the best one of the whole movie, is the phone booth scene. Because yes. that's kind of the last bastion of kind of normalcy she has before she kind of goes completely nuts, because she's trying. Or at to least c- appears to go completely nuts. Exactly. I mean, she's not really nuts. Like, spoiler yeah. alert: she does get impregnated by the devil. Um, <laughs> she has to go to the. She's trying to get in contact with her, the doctor she always wanted in the first place, and so she goes to this uh, phone booth and she starts like, she's trying to get in c- contact with him, but he's not answering the phone. She, she has to stay in case he calls back. And so she kind of has to, like, put on face. She has to pretend like she's having a conversation. Everything is normal, but she's clearly, like, kind of losing her marbles. And it's a very, it's all done in one take. A lot of long yeah. takes in this movie, but not the kind yeah. of showy kind. They're more... No, they're very more, good long takes. Yeah. And I think it's it works best for the story because the character is cleverly working towards a solution to a problem. I think it's my problem with the... Especially after this rape scene, which just gave me a, a really uh, ugly feeling inside and I didn't want to go with a story wherever it was going but for far too long she is just playing a domestic housewife and she's very passive in the story it always relies on Roman and Minnie coming over and giving her weird drinks or telling her like oh you're not going to be our doctor anymore we're going to recommend you to this other guy yeah high society doctor <laughs> yeah which I kind of get. It's like there is a sense of, like you said, the whole culture clash like New York. It's like upper crust society. Of course I would go with this doctor. Uh, yeah, I guess. But I, it's, for a moment there, I wasn't really going with it until she and her, her cohort, Hutch, like started investigating and getting into like witches. Um, yeah. And the fact that, yeah, I know every horror movie has to do this. Like we have to uncover it somehow. Now today, today it's a uh, Google, but back then it was books in the library. <laughs> I was a little disappointed that she she was told find an anagram or something like that, because one of the signs of schizophrenia is seeing patterns that aren't there. So she kind of just yeah. naturally was trying to find anagrams that would obviously uh, imply that she was crazier. But because someone tells her to do that, it's like it kind of has less of an impact. So yeah, although yeah, and she probably could have figured out that Castavet is a terrible <laughs> last name. <laughs> <laughs> and has res- resulted as is the result of a tortured anagram. Mm. So, <laughs> come with us quietly, Rosemary. Don't argue or make a scene, because if you say anything more about witches or witchcraft, we're gonna be forced to take you to a mental hospital. You don't want that, do you? So put your shoes on. We just want to take you home. No one's gonna hurt you. Well, the baby. Put your shoes on. (laughs) 
She's fine now. We're going to go home and rest. That's all it takes. Thank you for your trouble, Doctor. Rather could be of help, sir. It's a shame you had to come in here. I guess there's also... We didn't really talk about the fact that... I thought it was kind of weird that the bad guys end up being, like, the kind of older, traditional couple as opposed to like you know the newfangled ah the hippies you know they're bringing satan back into america (laughs) but i guess it's also this idea that she's younger so she's kind of it's a younger couple so they're kind of disposing of a lot of older traditions that's why the kind of older uh couple is kind of trying to consume them again or something like that or why they feel kind of so oppressive in the first place or continue their lives because as the doctor reveals Roman, he, he expects he only has a few months to live, and mm, they that's true, obfuscate yeah. in saying that, oh, they're going to go travel. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- she realizes, through that anagram, she realizes that he's descended from powerful witches. So, yeah, it's, it's, a, kinda, it's a sign that the cycle is renewing. And I guess you could say, that, like, the story that Levin was originally trying to tell is, yes, the older generation, even though they seem a little innocuous, have some <laughs> have some baggage that they're carrying, and creatively use this idea of a coven trying to spawn the devil. But, I, the, the problem is, like, I, I just wasn't going along with it emotionally. I don't want to say, like, oh, the movie had a rape, so I, I want to dismiss it immediately. I mean, yeah, but, that's... No, and I don't think you're at fault for re- being reminded that, yes, this was directed by a rapist who yeah. didn't have to pay for his crimes. You're absolutely right. That That is a major knock on the film. <laughs> well, yeah, and but, yeah, the, the way it's dismissed and the way it kind of terminates with her like kind of having to accept like this is my child so i'm going to have to raise the devil as my own um it's a little more ambiguous than that they did in in terms of the production history they did show the restraint and did not have not show the demon baby with say red eyes and hooves and whatever whatever other deformities it would have just looked silly probably he has his father's eyes yeah So at least they had that restraint, however, to ambiguously say, like, okay, I am going to embrace my, my role as the mom. Although maybe that is the tragedy that Ira Levin was going for, is, like, she's yeah. got to assume this role in motherhood. Mm-hmm. Although the the rest of the story doesn't see her counter, counteracting that. At one point, she's, she says, like, I'm not going to drink the crap that you give me, uh, <laughs> uh, Minnie and, and, uh, and Roman. I'm not going to drink that crap. I'm not going to go see your doctor. But the the only defiance we see out of her is I'm gonna have a I'm gonna have a party with just my friends, you know, people younger than seventy. <laughs> Otherwise, we don't see her being an independent woman and really breaking any gender roles. No, in fact, anything it's like her idea to have a baby in the first place. She thinks this is kind yeah. of her way to get you know her husband back into her life. So, I mean, it could be commenting on the fact that it's like women feel like they're kind of forced into this role, which obviously that's kind of the ultimate tragedy of the climax, but. Yeah, the movie doesn't really bear that out in the first act, I don't think, whatsoever. So, um, besides just an overall kind of theme of, like, women not being uh, in control of their own bodies, which uh, Roman Polanski seems to know a little bit about, doesn't he? (laughs) And also, I'm going to push back on the setting. As you said, it's a little unexpected for it to be taking place in a highly populated New York City. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, that said, like, oh, she's got so many places to go. She has a friend in in Hutch. Mm -hmm. She has, like, whereas other horror settings, like, say, the spaceship and Alien or the Haunted House, it's designed so you can't leave, so you're trapped in a way. But I never felt like she was truly trapped in the Dakota building. No, I guess you're right. I mean, the the nice thing about 
the New York setting is the fact that it's like she feels alone even though she can never truly be alone or something like that. Yeah. Like she goes at like there's a moment where she walks into traffic and just everyone's kind of like honking and mad at her, but yeah. it's like <laughs> clearly it's a woman in distress and no one cares. Yeah. But you said you said with the handheld camera work, I think on the street they either like didn't have permits or had to film quickly, so it brings some excitement when they're using natural light as opposed to like the stage or the stage or the set inside the apartment. Like now, now the camera's handheld. And so when she's waiting in the time life plaza for her friend Hutch, or as you said, walking across the street or in the phone booth, like suddenly the, the, the filmmaking makes the, reflects the tension that she's feeling in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, although that's well done again, I wasn't ready to go along with <laughs> Mr. Polanski on this journey. <laughs> I think overall, I, I don't know. I don't want to consign it to the dustbin of history because I think hugely influential in the horror genre. Like yeah. as you said, the way it sets up, like I, I think this established horror tropes. I don't think it like broke them. I think oh, it more okay. established them. Got yeah. It. I mean, I I enjoyed the movie as hard as that is to say. I don't really know if I want to recommend it because again, I don't want to give Roman Polanski any more credit than he, you know, should have. Um, yeah. Um, I yeah. do want to give Mia, Mia Farrow credit because that's true. An incredible yes, if that gives her residuals, then yes, then yeah. watch this movie, please. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> buy it, rent it, do what you have to, Get, donate to whatever cause Mia Farrow wants you to donate to. Yes, Mia Farrow, that gal, she's going places. <laughs> yes. All right. Speaking of somebody uh, bringing externalities in it as the uh, ex-wife of one uh, Woody Allen, Mm -hmm. another uh, problematic favorite, let's call him. Mm -hmm. Yes. This is a a difficult topic. Yeah. So, I don't know. I can't... It just made me feel icky at the end of it, like most horror movies. Like, there's a lot to explore. There's a lot of richness behind it. Very well produced by the one Mr. Polanski, no. but but yeah, I just I just couldn't go with it, and I didn't really enjoy my watching experience. Okay, yeah. All right. Well, now that we're the final word on the matter, you know we can exactly now, thank we good, can now yeah. never discuss yeah, it. Ever you're again. welcome, by the way, people. <laughs> uh, well, Greg, maybe we should yeah. end this podcast on some kind of segment where we do recommend something wholeheartedly. You know, to leave the leave the kids with, you know, something to really ponder, something to really think about. Yes. Already my energy's restored. Oh. And I feel lifted on a cloud of positivity. <laughs> <laughs> and the sun is scorching like a brick, like I'm over the cloud layer. Uh, just like, oh, the sun is scorching. It's like a big, bright, beautiful spotlight. 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 It's time, Robbie. It's time.
That's called figurative language, John. That's wow. <laughs> that's what us in the biz call <laughs> metaphor. I was gonna say, like, was watching this movie like torture? Was it as tortured as that metaphor? Like, well, I, <laughs> yes, because that's how I felt. <laughs> Greg, what do you have for spotlight? It's your turn to go first. Go, go. Okay, okay. Oh, you're right, right, right. Yeah. Well, I chips after pokes. It's because <laughs> we had a, a a friend's movie night and we got to watch a horror Halloween theme movie. Ooh. I suppose. I guess Halloween. It's not a horror movie. It's more a comedy drama. And I, I'm reluctant to spotlight it because we may look at it for a future episode, although we're not running out of films to look at. No. <laughs> but I want to talk about Tim Burton's Edward Scissorhands. Oh, you finally got around yeah. to seeing this one. Of course I did. Well, yeah, so I'm not a Tim Burton head, so I'm not I'm not actively seeking out uh, Dumbo <laughs> or Alice in Wonderland. That, that seems to be the Tim Burton that a lot of people are growing up with, and I, I weep for them. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I've I've said it many a time, but I think it bears repeating. The problem is with Tim Burton is that he's always tasked with directing family movies, and that's not what his wheelhouse should be. His wheelhouse no. should be for preteens and like proto goth kids. Like, <laughs> give him a movie pitched at thirteen year olds, and yes, he's perfectly in his wheelhouse. But the problem is, yeah. everyone's like, ever since he made The Nightmare Before Christmas, it's like throw Disney movies at him. He does family movies now, and it's like, no, that's not what he should be doing. Yeah. Yeah, he should be making cult movies. Because mm-hmm. I, I will concede that it, parts of Edward Scissorhands are very family friendly. First of all, it's it's very good. Mm-hmm. I did I did really enjoy it, and the fact that uh, let's say Tim Burton was still th- th- he wasn't part of the establishment, even though he only got to make this movie because of the success of Batman, and he got to employ all of his creative visions and and put it into a, a singular character played by Johnny Depp. Like Edward Scissorhands, mm-hmm. uh, there. I did love the the tone of it for one thing. Well, it starts with the production design, really, um, <laughs> and the fact that uh, shoot, I can't remember the writer's name. Uh, he didn't write it. He conceived it. He had this sketch for this guy with weird scissor hands, and that basically became the impetus for Edward Scissorhands. And then he handed it off to a writer who wrote this fairy tale for all intents and purposes. Yeah, that's that's definitely the tone of the movie. The uh, tone of the movie is extremely kind of fabulish. Yes. And so it starts with a, a, a young girl's question. Uh, a lot of people compared it to uh, The Princess Bride, in which a, a young person is, is listening to this fable and, and pe- peppering it with questions and really dissecting it. In this case, it's why, why does snow fall in our, our little conurbation here? <laughs> and so that leads to the fable of Edward Scissorhands. And I loved it when it was... As um, as Tim Burton brilliantly shows, this kind of uh, plasticky uh, ersatz uh, uh, white flight community, uh, which is, I was shocked to see was a real community in Florida. <laughs> other than other than maybe the paintings on some of the buildings, like the candy colored, like again completely phony, contrasted with a giant Gothic mansion on a hill. <laughs> And I was completely brought in by the brilliant performance. Speaking of great performances by wonderful actresses, Diane Weist as the Avon sales lady, Deb. <laughs> she she's having a tough sales go. You know, she's motivated to actually get to that mansion, and of course, she has too big a heart to just leave this uh, this young Edward Scissorhands. I say young. I did not know that he was a robot. Yeah, no, he's supposed to be a robot in the movie, built by yeah. Vincent Price. Who sadly yes. doesn't get a line in the movie. <laughs> uh, no, I I saw the trivia. Unfortunately, Vincent Price was very aged and suffering from Parkinson's at the time. So yeah. 
Although we're th- thankful that Tim Burton did get to wake, did get to work with this horror legend. Unfortunately, he didn't get to use all of Vincent Price's uh, <laughs> uh, wonderful gifts. Mm. From there, and the the culture clash between this uh, robot in this uh, leather and belt <laughs> lined suit and scissor hands is great. the The comedy there works. It's toward the it's toward the middle where I feel like they didn't know where they were going. So this is when they introduce a potential romance with a, a young woman played by Winona Ryder. And then from there, it becomes this uh, this romance story. And also, they have to keep conceiving of, like, comic set pieces. Like, they, they break into a house, which isn't really motivated by something. Uh, he, he gets charmed by uh, one of these bored suburban housewives. You know how women be, right, John? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> to basically sexually assault him. Uh, that, that hasn't aged well. But... <laughs> I mean, what did she find so attractive about him? Was it the nine-inch-long scissor hands? Like, what? <laughs> was she's it established the... early... She's established earlier that she needs it badly. Okay, that's, yeah. what, that's what motivates her. Okay. <laughs> Women do be like that, though. <laughs> I'm, kidding. I'm kidding, of course. But, yeah, it's from there that they, they didn't really know where to go, and the villain played by Anthony Michael Hall is kind of one note, and I, I wasn't really buying that either. Um, so... From there, it really takes a sag in quality, but it's uplifted again by, I think, the best part of the movie, Danny Elfman's score. Mm-hmm. So, like, the the whole is greater than, I think, the sum of its parts. Like, those those parts, like being Johnny Depp's performance and Danny Elfman's score and the production design are all top-notch. So that's really enough to, like, see it, I think, year-round and not just around <laughs> Halloween. So I was, I, I was kind of... Really, really darn good. <laughs> Even um, though you and I are movie skeptics, pretty much, or look at things with maybe too critical of an eye. Well, I mean, uh, I was brought in. It, it has a lot of heart. So no, yeah, it's 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 good. Like you said, like the sum of its parts. But I kind of feel the same way I feel about the Nightmare Before Christmas, which you're right. It feels like a once another year. imperfect vision. Yes, yeah. it it feels like a once a year movie for me. And again, just kind of like light, just kind of like a little too airy yeah. for me. It's like I. I use the fable-ish kind of quality a little uh, diminutively because for me it just kind of it feels a little too effervescent a little too kind of like light on story light on themes light on basically anything besides hey why can't we all just get along yeah <laughs> sometimes different is good yeah. um and so i i while i do appreciate the production design i would like to see the story be a little bit more challenging yeah, well, maybe challenging isn't the word, but there, there's a lot more, there's a lot greater depths that they could have plumbed with this character. Mm-hmm, exactly, yeah. Yeah, the fact that he is like a like a Pinocchio, and at least that story, he gets eaten by a whale and <laughs> has his friends turn to the donkeys. Like, here, the the vision isn't as quite out there. Yeah. So that's a, that's a thing, and that's why I, I want to push back on you. I think Tim Burton does have some very accessible, family-friendly uh, virtues. Mm-hmm. I think it's a virtue, not a not a detriment, that he does go through a, a much more like, or at least a more accessible to children and teenagers, and not really going into say like darker territory. Mm. I, I mean, on the surface, dark, but uh, like he doesn't. It didn't need. To, it didn't need to be a, a violent vision. Like uh, Edward Scissorhands didn't need to die at the end. Is what I'm saying. Yeah, exactly. I don't know. I did, the last movie I saw of his was like the Mrs. Pettigrew's Home for Peculiar Children, you know, that like franchise starter that never went anywhere. Yeah. So, which like that movie has some kind of like genuinely horrifying moments that I was kind of impressed by that I was kind of taken okay. aback by. And I, that's why I kind of was like, it made me retrospectively look at his whole career and been like, if he was only making this, like how different would he, would he kind of be in the cultural zeitgeist, you know? 
Like if you could well, go like full camp instead of like, oh, I gotta make a product for Disney again. <laughs> I gotta make Dumbo. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also want to ask about the the mise en scène because I see clips from Dumbo and it just overwhelms my eyes and I, my brain can't process it. <laughs> like here, I was so thankful to see like real houses, real painted houses on real streets with real topiary. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas if you if you made this today, it would be like high definition. All the ice sculptures and everything would be fake or CGI because they. Don't don't have the time to you know, make these creations. Mm-hmm. Uh, does Miss Mrs. Pettigrew's home like suffer from that, or um, not necessarily? I think it just suffers from just being X Men again. <laughs> I think that's <laughs> kind of the problem. <laughs> There's also kind of weird time travel elements as well that I just kind of think let the story down. Like if if you're gonna in- introduce time travel, you got to make that all about in the like all about the movie. You can't just have that be like yeah. one aspect of it. And cuz yeah. your movie like, like the like the cloning technology and the prestige. Exactly. Like, <laughs> oh, this is a thing now. This is something to get out of trouble. <laughs> just to get out of a uh, story jail free card. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. I don't want to sound like it. a YouTube essayist and complaining about that, but <laughs> here's my Mrs. Pettigrew rewrite. <laughs> I'm yeah. sure you are all clear for it. Yeah, are there still those like everything wrong about videos? Cuz I'm sure you could do a lot on Edward Scissorhands. But I don't know. I, I was still charmed by it. Yeah, I, I like nitpicking's not going away anytime soon. But uh, I don't okay. know. Oh, sorry, I sorry. assume <laughs> Cinema Sins is still doing content. I okay. unsubscribed for them a long time ago, but yeah. I, I'm ashamed that you subscribed in the first place. I so. like them. All right. How dare I, you? I will. I will be the first to bat at them. The problem is because they're a comedy show. Okay, they're not film criticism, <laughs> and anyone who took them seriously as film criticism is a fool. And so that's why I will go to bat for them. All right. They were always funny. That's the joke. Sure. Now you sound like a Marvel apologist. Like, <laughs> what? It's just fun. <laughs> I think that, but ultimately, that was their own undoing because they ran out of movies to do. Like, no one complained when they oh, were doing yeah. just blockbusters, but eventually they ran into, they had to do Jaws, they had to do Citizen Kane, and that's where I think yeah. everyone got, you know, in a tizzy. Well, I also saw they have to do, like, now every, everything great by, <laughs> or a great about. <laughs> well, I think that's another channel that's trying to, you know, bunny hop off their success. Oh, I see. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> yep, still doing content. Event, John. Still lots of yep. content. Never stops. Yes. The YouTube machine. Speaking of content, John, it's your turn. All right, uh, you yes. got to start pumping some stuff out for the masses. Let's do it. All right. Speaking of uh, YouTube, they don't, they don't sponsor yeah. us, but gosh darn it, if they don't have more content <laughs> that we could ever want. All right. More, exactly. More mule for the gristle. And I have a great anti-capitalist uh, propaganda documentary I want to recommend to you. It's called The Illusionists. So this has nothing to do with the Ed Norton starring uh, competition to the prestige, which we brought up earlier. <laughs> no, no. Is this going to be a new trend? Are we going to bring up the prestige every episode? <laughs> yeah, I think we are. Okay. I, I'm not mad about One it. One of the most influential films of the new century, John, I think. Uh, not in the good way. <laughs> um, but yeah, The Illusionists is a, uh, it's a, it's, I think it was produced by uh, French filmmakers, but it, it, it covers a lot of ground. It covers a lot of different, it's filmed in a lot of different countries, but basically it's all about uh, kind of body image and marketing and it's kind of one of those polemic uh, documentaries about how uh, marketers have kind of brainwashed us all into believing that there, you know, there is no perfect body. It's, you know, the right body is the one you don't currently have. So, um, and what I like about it is obviously uh, that kind of societal pressures put a lot more on women, but it takes time out to give some time for the men. Huh? <laughs> I knew that you were looking forward to something. <laughs> Bam. Nailed you. Damn. Uh, got yeah. me. Um, 
Yeah, but it's like it's a really well done documentary. Uh, I don't think it's kind of exploring new ground, but it's always a nice reminder that you know uh, capitalist society is constantly lying to you and constantly telling you <laughs> that you're not good enough and that you need to buy products to be more fulfilled. So um, in that sense, I think it's a great reminder in that. And then mm-hmm. the other thing too is uh, I haven't gotten a chance to see the new Ken Burns movie. Uh, uh, the new Ken Burns film, uh, Country Music, yet, but you know, I'm always jonesing for some Peter Coyote narration. Let me tell you. Oh, boy, oh, he's, in still, this one. he's still kicking. I, are you kidding? He never stops, he never will. Uh, okay, stop. sorry. I know we just lost Rip Taylor, so <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't know what other figures from the 60s and 70s were uh, bound to lose. <laughs> yeah, Peter Coyote's still kicking. Uh, this movie, this documentary is from 2015, but mm-hmm. uh, he narrates it with aplomb, so you, yes. okay. Even had some time to fit in some jokes. <laughs> yeah, I I was anticipating when you said anti-capitalist polemic documentary, I was ready for you to say another brilliant Peter Coyote documentary. If I could recommend something else, uh, Enron, the smartest guy in the room. No, 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 no. It's not that. Uh, that's another. That's another polemic that'll make you mad at the system. <laughs> no, yeah, this one. This one's a little more kind of uh, broad. It's more about uh, kind of body issues, like how the. Uh, like marketers try to target women specifically, start them young, mm-hmm. get them sexualized. You know, oh, you're too young. You're too, you know, keep shopping till you look older. You look older. Oh, wait, you're not white <laughs> enough. Like, you know, put on this skin yeah. cream. And what's nice is it's obviously made for a Western audience, but it tries to, it shows you what, you know, marketing looks like in Dubai. It makes you, it shows you what marketing looks like in Beijing. It makes you look, uh, makes you see what marketing is like in Lebanon. And it doesn't get too conspiratorial, but it does kind of make the point that it's it's trying to kind of form this, trying to unify its kind of global message in order to make okay. it easier to market to people. So it's like the ideal woman is now the, you know, this one thing. So that way we don't have to target specifically to markets anymore, that there's now one global kind of beauty standard. All right. Is there a call to action at the end or... Is it more like bringing awareness to this issue? Uh, bringing awareness to the issue. Uh, okay. Which I think is kind of, uh, you know, that's kind of like vague and important, but no, it's there's no call to action. Like, burn okay. it all down. <laughs> <laughs> Take a Molotov cocktail to L'Oreal. You know, it's not like that bad, but, you know. Yeah. And well, I, if it's just raising awareness or just trying to teach you to think more critically, that's not a bad thing, so. Yeah. I, I will say, you reminded me of another documentary. It's not exceptional in the way that I'm sure this or Enron, the smartest guys in the room is. Mm-hmm. But do you remember the Morgan Spurlock movie, the greatest movie ever sold? Oh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Brought there, to you by there's a brilliant, there's a Yeah, there's, there's a brilliant sequence in that in which Morgan Spurlock is not on screen. <laughs> <laughs> I can already but, tell it's brilliant. Yes, but instead they go to a district in, I believe, Rio de Janeiro, where they... They pass an ordinance. They take off all the advertising in the area. Mm. So what was filled, what did look like, not exactly like Times Square, but what was, you know, floor to ceiling billboards on these giant on these giant structures, like now, like suddenly it's uncluttered and clear, and it just shows like the amount of beauty that it, the the this neighborhood, this urban neighborhood now possesses. Mm-hmm. So, and again, without Marcus Spurlock, like, you know, telling you, like, hey, how do these meetings go? You know, just kind of being his affable self. <laughs> Instead, it just sh- directly shows you, like, oh, what a difference it makes and what a positive impact it makes. So, I was thinking maybe that's something they could have, I don't know, forwarded. Well, but, I mean, yeah, that yeah. is the kind of, that is kind of the concept they're trying to get behind. Because, again, like, 
happy, uh, sad people make the best consumers because <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't buy things because you're content. So, you mm-hmm. know, like that's the whole point of marketing. It's manufactured discontent. Yeah. It's like I said, like the kind of tagline of the movie is the right body is the one you don't have. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, capitalism, am I right, folks? Hey, let's participate in it some more. Social media. <laughs> yes. <laughs> John, I feel like you're you're diving into this this socialism head first. It's pretty dangerous if you if you ask me. Mm. I mean, because my life is great, and I don't want things to change at all. So, <laughs> I mean, have you heard about how dangerous Medicare for all is? If someone gets Medicare, exactly. who's going to pay for it? Exactly. Is it I, you? I prefer a system where a private insurance com- company where we pool all our money together, and a private insurance company takes it all for themselves <laughs> rather than. <laughs> The dang government, that's for sure. Exactly. They'll probably mismanage it, where this corporation knows exactly where it's going. Exactly. Good for them. (laughs) But let us know your thoughts about socialism and progressivism by visiting us on social media. That's right. We got Twitter pages. We got Facebook pages. We got Insta pages. Instagram. Well, you say pages. It's really one. No, no, I'm old, so I call call them pages. So I'm like, is this one of them worldwide web pages? Am I surfing the net now? It's aspiring snobs is what you're looking for, and it's spelled how it sounds. Okay. <laughs> Hard consonants. Yes, but if you want to send a missive to us directly, you can always email oh, yeah. us at aspiringsnobs at gmail.com. And unlike you, John, I'm still a capitalist pig. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I want those. I want that sweet, sweet advertising money. So I'm going to implore you, go to your podcast service of choice, whether it be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Disher, we're on all of them. Mm-hmm for all intents and purposes maybe not SoundCloud but go ahead rate us five stars more people will find the show and we'll be creating we'll be cultivating community mm-hmm. in which we can open a dialogue or discussion about these movies uh, I really do want to hear genuinely do want to hear thoughts on Rosemary's Babies because if I said babies that's fine <laughs> Rosemary's Baby because yeah I'd, I'd, I'd be okay with kind of leaving it uh, to the dustbin of history to be perfectly honest mm. but Due to its creator and some of its content. but Yes. And like you said, we want to build a community so we can sell you stuff. Yes. <laughs> the more listeners you have, the more ads we can put in. Yes. This episode brought to you by have... Yamaha. Yamaha. Oh, what a, <laughs> what a fine automobile this is. <laughs> no, John, it's a motorcycle. Oh, okay. Jap- the Japanese car companies that didn't make their way into, well, the, not the Yamaha makes cars, but. <laughs> <laughs> well, wasn't it, wasn't he in a Yamaha commercial? Yes, he was. Okay. But they broke into America via motorcycles first. No, oh, okay. Not cars. Oh. Uh, Mad Men had a pitch uh, oh, involving thank, go- the- thank goodness we have Greg to give us a history lesson here. Oh, my yes. <laughs> yes. Mad Men, that great documentary. <laughs> <laughs> the 60s were really like that. <laughs> yeah. But the only thing we have to pitch right now is that we'll be back next week. And we want you to come back <laughs> by uh, revealing the movie that we're going to watch next time. Yes. We're moving along the decades. We're getting into the 70s now, baby. Oh, yeah. Sexual revolution's over. But, man, we are still not wearing condoms. <laughs> the me decade, baby. <laughs> yep. Nothing's more me than another story about a selfish woman who explores witchcraft too much. And all the sad people around her pay the price. <laughs> I, I I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> yes, we're talking about the... the we mentioned Stephen King earlier, and we're going to fulfill his line his pockets as well we're yes. talking carrie mm-hmm. the original 1976 sissy spacek uh the woman who played the the actor who played her mother whose name i can't remember now <laughs> apparently she's very good but we don't know we haven't seen it yet exactly so it'll it'll be quite a treat 
Greg yes. wanted to see Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I yeah, like, I'm going to throw John under the bus. I wanted to watch either Texas <laughs> Texas Chainsaw Massacre or The Exorcist, but John is too much of a baby to actually watch really scary films. We'd have to pay for it. Carrie's That's streaming fair. free somewhere, or not free. We obviously pay for these streaming services because this is where we are right now. We're more, yeah. you know, <laughs> we're more meat sent to the grinder for the capitalist machine. I still think it's better than cable, to be honest. Yeah. Whatever. So far, we'll see how the future, what the future holds. I mean, if I can get an endless stream of HGTV, I'll be happy. So if I can just get that. Mm. Uh, well, thank you everybody for listening. And until next time, keep aspiring, and you want to be fooled. <laughs> That's a callback, you see, John. Oh, for those God. who for those who haven't seen the Prestige, in which case you're fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. But. <laughs> Every magic trick consists of three parts, or acts. The first part is called the pledge. The magician shows you something ordinary. The second act is called the turn. The magician takes the ordinary something and makes it into something extraordinary. But you wouldn't clap yet because making something disappear isn't enough. You have to bring it back. Mm-hmm.